Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. This episode is one of the last ones. I think we've only got about one or two left that we recorded before lockdown began. But don't worry, we're going to be recording uh, some new episodes remotely soon. So they will be going out uh, as normal on the podcast feed. Or if you're a Book Shambles Patreon subscriber, you'll be able to get the extended versions of those as well as... uh, video versions of them as well because we're going to be doing it over over Skype and Zoom so we'll be making the the videos of those live remote episodes available for Patreon subscribers as well if you'd like to become a Patreon subscriber to Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network go to patreon.com slash book shambles and you can pledge there lots of goodies coming up for Patreon people over the next few months while we're all unable to get out and do live shows for you. We hope you enjoyed the Sea Shambles show from Royal Albert Home on Sunday night. Just gone. That's available uh, for catch up on our YouTube channel. Three and a half hours of science and music and comedy with Robin and Josie and Helen Chersky and Brian Cox and Chris Hadfield and Lem Cisse and Kobe Smulders and Liz Bonin and Reese Shearsmith and lots and lots of people. And also do check out our new six part documentary series first episode went out last night at 8 30 p.m you can catch up on our youtube channel it's called science in zero g it's a six-part series hosted by helen chesky and Ginny smith both who you will have heard on this podcast in the past and that's looking at the the sort of science that the european space agency conducts on parabolic microgravity flight so we were out in france uh at the end of last year filming that helen went up on a zero g flight uh to experience that and get a first-hand look at the experiments so check that out on our youtube channel as well and now on to this week's episode uh this is robin chatting with adam rutherford about his new book how to argue with a racist <music> Hello, welcome to Josie and Robbie's Book Shambles. As usual, Josie Long's not here. Um, we're joined by uh, Dr. Adam Rutherford. You're not a professor yet, are you? Not quite. You're on the cusp. Good. Not quite. I always get worried about that because when we do Christmas shows and stuff, and some people are very specific about the mentioning of their professorship or their doctorate or whatever. I, it I might don't be. actually care very much. It doesn't um, matter. You sell fine, so it's not a. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that's the. Uh, um, Right, we'll, we'll get straight to talking about your, your new book. We never, I don't think we ever talked about your other book, which was all about otter sex. And um, you've moved from otter sex to racism. Yes. Um, which is, again, from an evolutionary perspective, <laughs> that's always how you know, the, the, uh, the art was uh, drawn. It's a natural transition in many ways for many evolutionary <laughs> biologists. There's, there's a big, long-established pathway between otter and giraffe sex and racism. Did your editor at any point say, could you just pop in a little bit of the otter sex, <laughs> even though it doesn't actually contextually, uh, because that, that was one of your big stories for when you were uh, selling the last book. Yeah, I don't. I sort of didn't want to be known as the otter sex guy, but it just kept happening over and over again. That's not true, though. You are uh, such a slightest. liar. The, uh, <laughs> listeners can't see your face, but I don't want to be known as the otter sex guy. That did not ring true. Not possibly not. It was only a short bit about otter necrophilia. It just, uh, it just, the frequency with which people send me pictures of otters doing ridiculously cute things 
in all, you know, and I have to clench my jaw and say, yeah, yeah, they're awful, awful bastards of animals. Uh, but I, I've, I've retired the Otter Vibe Police now. I'm not, I'm not, I'm no longer taking calls when it comes to Otter Sex. Mm. But you start off one of, and it's a, it's a very well written book. It's a very concise book, basically dealing with very specific ideas of, and it's something that we did a, a monkey cage. We did. What was that about about four years ago on? on this subject and but you start off by by saying in the pursuit of power and wealth the fetishization of these differences has been the source of the cruelest acts in our short history so this to me is an interesting point is in terms of what we might consider to be contemporary racism the history of racism when do we see it as being because it is predominantly i would say an issue of skin color overall this is where the the line is when people want to group that they have to find a very overt physical difference. Yeah. When do we see that in, in history? Because I know some people said that that idea, certainly there's always been slaves, but the slavery and things like that were not down to going. There were different ways of deciding that this group were inferior. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And it really comes into its own in the 17th and 18th century, the years of colonial expansion, the age of exploitation, of plunder, the age that we call fondly the Enlightenment, which I think is a problematic term. But it's also coincident with the birth of the scientific revolution, also a problematic term. We see some evidence for pigmentation-based ethnocentrism before that, notably during the Islamic era of slavery, which lasted 900 years and up to 5 million people enslaved. During that time, there's one, as far as I, I can trace, there's one reference by the, the great scientist philosopher Avicenna, um, who's from sort of a, bit, a bit further east, who, who references pigmentation uh, associated with character traits, specifically that um, sub-Saharan African people are lazy and fickle, but also, and this is why it's very interesting, it, he, he makes reference to Northern Europeans, very pale-skinned people as also being incompetent and, and I think lazy, something like that. Um, and this is a sort of prelude to what is going to be the dominant idea, as you just said, the dominant idea in racial taxonomy and classification for the next 500 years centred out of European expansionism, which is pigmentation. There are plenty of references to pigmentation in classical literature all over the world, the earliest being in Homer, um, in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. The word Ethiopia is first used in the Iliad. Um, meaning not quite the same country of Ethiopia today, but Ethiopia literally translates as burnt face. Odysseus himself is described as swarthy or swarthy, dusky. Um, in general, and, and there are plenty of references to skin colour and pigmentation in e ancient Egypt, in Rome, in documentation around um, uh, the Roman occupation of Britain, and so on. But in general, pigmentation is not associated with particular behavioural characteristics in a way that it becomes definitionally so during, during the Enlightenment. So religion, language, geography are much more likely to be the, the, the base causes of ethnocentrism until we get to European men um, expanding a, a, around the world. And it's, it's, this is not my theory. This is relatively well established amongst um, historians of, of race and historians of, of the Enlightenment. Um, the, the othering of people that comes with taxonomizing them, 
is allows that it encourages the subjugation of those people it makes it easier because there's another factor which is in in all those early attempts by people like Linnaeus and Voltaire and Kant and great philosophers and thinkers of the Enlightenment it's not simply classification it's hierarchical taxonomies and you know every single case without exception white Europeans are are dominant and so this is a it's a way of expanding around the world and saying well, we, we are entitled to be here because we are we are both different and we are superior. So they're white supremacists in a very literal sense, not the same sense that white supremacists are, that we, we talk about them today. But it is inherent to the system that Europeans are better in many qualities than the other people of the world. See, I'd never realised until we were doing a show about climate change a while ago, and uh, I think it was Danielle Walker um, said uh, that basically the reason slavery ends is mechanisation. That if you don't have the advance of uh, mechanisation, then you still have to find some way of enslaving people because the financial imperative, which is uh, yeah, kind of I can, staggeringly I can, worrying, simple and worrying yeah. at, at the same time. Yeah, I, I think that I think I think that may well be that may well be correct. I think this is one of the things that I is important for one of the audiences the book is written for is other scientists who you know within genetics. We've been teaching the history of our subjects, which is only 100 years old, really, but also the deeper history about scientific racism. That, this is not contra- controversial. You know, this, 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 is, this is part of learning how to do contemporary genetics is, is you know, the 100-year history of, of, of genetics. But I think that what's really striking for multiple audiences that, that, that might like this book is that the repercussions and the, the sort of percolation of ideas that are formulated by people like Linnaeus and Voltaire continues to this day. So Linnaeus attempts to classify humans in five subspecies, which are Europaeus, Americanus, Asiaticus, um, Afa or Africanus. Um, And the initial classifier is pigmentation plus hair colour or straightness. So it says, you know... um, Asiaticus, yellow-skinned, straight black hair. Um, Americanus, red-skinned, straight black hair, thick, straight hair, whatever. Um, Afa or Africanus, um, black-skinned, silky-skinned, tight curly hair. But in, in the same sentences, in the same descriptors, he also adds on loads of just cu- cultural and um, judgmental um, descriptions of of these people, you know, 1.3 billion African people are not just black skinned, curly haired, but they're also lazy, capricious, um, uh, lusty women. The Asians are not just yellow skinned and straight black hair, but they're also greedy and haughty and ruled by caprice, or you know, things like that. And they're 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 breathtaking in their straightforward racism, and I don't mean that in a you know the, the rule in history that we don't judge people by contemporary values. They they are literally racist in a non-judgmental way, um, and yet some of those sentiments still are perpetrated amongst racist stereotypes to this day that black people are are lazy but strong. Right, we see that a lot in in 
sporting descriptions. Well, there was um, Hashi Mohammed, who's uh, a barrister who's just written a, uh, a book, who's at the 5 by 15 event I was doing last night. And during his talk, he said that uh, in a recent poll, 44% of people said that some races were lazier than others. <laughs> So that's right, forty-four percent. You know, he's a, a, yeah. a barrister originally from Kenya, and and the, you know his story is a very interesting story, and uh, it's a very interesting start of the week where he had uh, an argument with Jordan Peterson, which you might also enjoy. Um, <laughs> but uh, those and and when you talk about the hair as well, when you talk in the book about the specifics of why, I mean, first of all, the incredible thing there's two hundred genes involved, for instance, in the, sure. the color of hair, which is you know people are, are, are as you've written about before in other books, you know, people want to say there's a gene for this, and you go very. Yeah. Well, it's never that simple. The, the this loan, yeah. um, but it reminded me of, of Lem Sisse's book. I don't know if you've read it yet, which is we banged on about this many times for the simple reason that it's, it's a magnificent piece of work. That when he was being brought up by his foster mother, uh, she would just comb his hair with just a, a normal European cut, which of course you know, and the thickness there. And, and she basically said that he had this kind of like a problem hair, almost like an illness that that there. And it was only when he was a teenager, for some reason, he ended up at Errol Brown's house from hot chocolate, and Errol Brown gave him an afro comb. And it was the first time he went, oh, I don't... So it's not that I have mutant hair. Yeah. This is my hair. This is, you know... Yeah. Yeah. Chris Rock's documentary on on that, the name of which I forget about, his daughter discovering that she has problem hair and trying trying to rectify it without... And this being a sort of emblematic of of uh, try, trying to expunge um, blackness from, 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 from their sort of cultural roots. Yeah, these things are totally baked into our society. The, um, um, the, uh, it's called Good Hair, that's that, that documentary. Um, the sport is really interesting in this. I, I'm, I'm interested in sport. I love, I love sport. Well, actually, before we get on to that, oh, yeah, sure. you write quite a lot about that, but which is what... When we hear, because you talk about the fact that, you know, technically people, if they want to, can say, well, of course, Adam is mixed race, you know, and you use various other, you know, antiquated half cast, all of these different words and phrases that have been used. But it still seems to be a problem to work out what on earth people mean by race. Yeah. This idea of different that until we can change that language, because yeah. I, I, I don't know when 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 you're having to use this in debates, in papers whatever it might be yeah what do we mean yeah by race you I, know the idea that you're yeah. that that in itself seems like such a because that that's almost like well there's this 50 percent thing if we if we cut you down the middle then we see exactly which bit is which race yeah no this is exactly right the language that we use is we're, we're so locked into a system a social categorization system this is one of the key things that part of the motivation of writing the book is the conversations we are having within genetics within within the academy and not the same conversations that, that I've, I was discovering when speaking to audiences to public audiences about this kind of stuff that when we say that race is a it's not a biological construct it's not it's not the way we talk about race the folk taxonomies of race are not reflected by the underlying genetic diversity that has been revealed as a result of looking at, at DNA at genes the human genome project and and so on, so that that's what we mean when we say that race is a, a a biological falsity and it is a social construct. Now that in itself is a phrase which has been slightly weaponized. That people say race is just a social construct as a means of undermining the argument that says that it's not it's a biological falsity, which is a stupid, a ridiculous thing to say because we don't have biological relations with 
pretty much everyone we ever encounter, unless you're extraordinarily good looking. Mm. Right? Everything we do is... Have I ever had a bi- biological interaction with you? You but, sneezed near me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> sort of. These days, with coronavirus. i to uh, the arts. <laughs> but anyway, you know, money is a social con- construct. Time is a social construct. You don't get people saying... I'm not going to pay you because money is just a social construct. Yet you do get people saying, yeah, you know, race is, right, it must be biological. It's not just a social construct. So there is a a language issue here. But using pigmentation as a primary sort of descriptor, source of taxonomy, is not necessarily problematic in and of itself because we're very visual. And I've had, I, I gave a lecture a couple of days ago and a pathologist said to me, look, when, when I've got a dead body in front of me on the slab, the first two things we, we say in describing it to someone else are what sex it is and what colour it is. Now, I, his question to me, not in a non-confrontational way, is how do we get round that? You know, how do, how do I say the, 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 a more accurate version of the description about pigmentation when actually it is a useful, it conveys an idea because it's a social construct, because we have a tacit cultural understanding of what that means. The scientific perspective on that is what we now know, and this is research which is only two or three years old, that there's more pigmentation diversity in Africa than there is in the rest of the world. So, so say it, And yet I can say... The guy on the front desk here is a black guy, and you know roughly what I mean. I mean it's someone with darker pigmentation than the average European, um, probably with with curly, tight hair, and whose whose recent ancestry includes the continent of Africa. But as a scientific designation, that's just that gives you very very little information whatsoever. So I don't know. The semantics are really important in this, but I, I don't quite know how we get around the fact that we're locked into this system, which is fundamentally rooted in the Enlightenment, in, in those descriptions. Yeah, Kant like, doesn't come across well from this either, does it? Voltaire's the one that, that, that Vol- most surprised me. I mean, the great hero of the Enlightenment, um, again, everyone was more racist there, everyone is a white supremacist. Everyone is also a creationist, fundamentally, and the two main arguments... Monogenism versus polygenism. Well, that's what I was going to ask. So, what is? Tell me about what that means in terms of uh, how we divide people up. Yeah. So, so both camps are wedded to the idea that Adam and Eve, the the the, the literal description of Genesis, is is roughly correct. Humanity is derived from the pairing of of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, who exist somewhere in Babylonia. You know, at, at, at a rough geogra- geographical estimate. The monogenists believe that all the different types of people that we see on Earth today have emerged from this pairing and then migrated around around the world. Whereas the polygenists um, say that people migrated from Adam and Eve and then they developed those characteristics in, in situ. Now, the extreme version of polygenism is expressed most um, perniciously by Voltaire, you know, the great hero of the Enlightenment, a character of profound interest, great wit, you know, w- wonderful hero, incredible racist, polygenist to the extent that he argued that black people, that Africans are a different species to uh, Europeans. So not not just, you know, sort of biologically different, but actually a different type of, of and he uses the word animal to describe them. Now, again, 
Do we judge people by contemporary standards? No, we don't. Is that view racist? Yes, it is. Is it more racist than the views of other people of his time? Yes, I think arguably, yes. I, mean, I think sometimes people say, don't judge people by, by contemporary standards as a sort of get-out clause so that you don't have to actually address the fact that everything was more racist or worse or different mm. or more sexist than it was in, in the past. I think a lot of historians think it's fine to contextualise the the differences. It's not we're not saying that literally everyone was exactly the same type of racist. There were more, you know, Voltaire was a nastier, more pernicious racist than Blumenbach or or Kant. Uh, Kant was a was a monogenist primarily, and and there's there's an interesting parallel that I, I make in the book that 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 argument is also the same argument we had in the late uh, 20th century about human origins from a scientific point of view. There was the out-of-Africa hypothesis and there's the multi-regional hypothesis. And the multi-regional being poly polygenist and out-of-Africa being monogenist. We now know that the monogenist, sorry, the, the um, out-of-Africa idea is, is fundamentally correct. The, I think the parallels between those two are that, well, monogenism was pretty much exactly the same principle as out of Africa, but just wrong in every single criteria that it's defined by. So you see, you know, sort of recapitulation of the ideas of human origins, but just on very, very limited data and quite a lot of prejudice. Now, you talk, you, the, two of the, the main chapters are about IQ. Yep. It's, uh, and the other one is something that you did start talking about, and I stopped you, which is about athletic ability. Mm -hmm. And you and you talk about, I mean, it's the, the complicated way that that narrative is taken on by different people. You talk about, for instance, <clears throat> that you know Michael Jordan at one point talked about the fact that he had started to believe that rather than just uh, you know part of the reason that he was a great uh, sportsman may well have been the fact that uh, breeding via slavery. Which yeah. is, you know, Johnson, which, actually, Michael Johnson. Oh, Michael Johnson. Which, my, oh, Jordan, Jordan was the, oh, sorry, the basketball yeah, player, yeah. Johnson, the 400 metres. Yeah, Michael Johnson. So you talk about Michael Johnson, and he and, and he talks about it from a very worried perspective. Am I this because of actually this terrible thing of, of, of my past? Yeah. And there's lots of different people, of course, taken it, as, as you said, also that, you know, they said, well, of course, they're very good at running fast. You know, all of that. Yeah. So this is, this is. I think sport is important in this in this conversation because it is one of the ways that historically people have been exposed to other people around the world, also at the extremes of their ability. So this is potentially the, a domain of positive attribute racism because, you know, who, who doesn't want to be musclier, faster, better at running, you know, more skillful at, well, at whatever sport? Um, it's, again, it relates to the historical roots of of these sorts of racial definitions because we tend to associate athleticism and physical prowess with african americans or with africans in a way that we don't with europeans so one assessment of 3000 comments about elite athletes in the media in the sports media um a couple of years ago indicated that in the vast majority of cases where the athlete the elite athlete was black of African or African-American origins, the comments related to their innate physicality, right, their, in, their, their, their bodies. Um, whereas in the vast majority of cases when the elite athlete was white, the references were to their industriousness or their intelligence. And so this is just an example of how baked into our culture these ideas are, again, rooted in those Enlightenment distinctions. 
when it comes to looking at the numbers, you know, so, so the 100 meter sprint, they're, 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 I focus largely on long distance running and, and sprint running because they, those are two significant contributors to these, these sorts of racial stereotypes. In the 100 meter sprint, in the Olympic finals, there hasn't been a white man since 1980. And that year, when Alan Wells mm. won, that was the year that it was in Moscow, so the Americans had boycotted. It was the last time that the winning time was over 10 seconds. Now, since then, there hasn't been a white man in that race. So you think, well, okay, I mean, this is to the casual observer, oh, and, and a billion people watch the Olympics 100 meters final. To the casual observer, this is a data set, right? This, this, this looks like compelling evidence. And then you tie it into the notion that um, selection via slavery, enhancement of the enslaved's bodies um, through persecution has meant that actually biologically, as Michael Johnson alluded to, actually accounts for this positive attribute. But actually, it, it, everything about what I've just said is, is not correct. So the first thing is, we, we, don't, we don't see any evidence of selection for any gene, not just physical sporting ability, muscular genes, anything like that. When you compare African-Americans, the biggest study of which was 29,000 of which, to Africans from West Africa or, or across sub-Saharan Africa, we don't see any evidence of selection for any genes whatsoever. You do, it's, they're different genetically, but that's because they've had a different pathway. Something like 20% of the, Afri the African-American genome is actually derived from Europeans, which we think accounts for the fact that there's much higher levels of certain diseases in African-Americans compared to Africans. But anyway, the first point is we just don't see any selection. Mm. And you would expect to see selection if you were attributing this characteristic towards a, a, a selective paradigm. So that's one thing. The, the second thing is that the numbers don't add up anyway. So um, your, your sample size is 58. Only 58 men have actually run in that race. So N equals 58 is a crappy, crappy sample size. And yet it is exactly that sample that this stereotype is entirely based upon, mm. right? And then the third thing is, you do, in a sense, you don't even need to talk about the genetics or the evolution because if it were true, and if it were predominantly an advantage that is biologically innate rather than culturally determined, then you'd expect to see similar ratios of dominance in multiple physical activities that in, that, in which explosive energy is beneficial. And yet the number of, of African-Americans who have swum in the shortest distance or any of the short form distance in the Olympics is one. I'm just it's one it's it's one one man so that one's one very woman. similar to the show jumping gene exactly yeah. exactly and in, and the same you know you don't see you don't see um black um squash players or lacrosse players in american football which is an interesting sport because different body types are required in different positions on on the field a bit like rugby here you see uh the the running backs tend to be african american reinforcing this notion that they are that they're selected for sprinting um, but the linebacks, you see a 50-50 split between white or European-Americans and African-Americans, except in the position of centre, which is 75% white. Now, when you look at those numbers like that, you just think, well, this, I mean, it, it's, it's impossible to draw any pattern 
that is innate or biological or genetic out of any form, just, just looking at any sport. There are no black sprint cyclists, and yet that would perfectly suit having faster, having more fast twitch uh, muscles and heavy musculature, especially in your thighs. And yet there are none. Now, is it a parsimonious explanation to say that that is innately biological? Somehow, African-American genes are predisposed to running, but not cycling. Or is it parsimonious to suggest that there is a culture, socioeconomic benefits associated with one particular sport, dominated and led with lots of role models, which is a really significant factor in sporting um, success, cultural sporting success, and that sprint cycling is a sport of privilege. Is that not a more parsimonious explanation? When I get into arguments with dickheads online about this, they, they say things like, well, African-Americans have slightly longer arms. Therefore, that makes them worse at, I don't know, cycling or squash. Do we really think that those marginal differences are going to be the difference between one swimmer and uh, it, one black swimmer and no white 100 metres runners? No. These are, these are not good not good models. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about a thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. We've, we've pretty much right. We haven't dealt with... Well, we didn't need to do because people need to buy the book. If we deal with too much of it, then they don't need to buy it. Um, <laughs> but you talk also... I mean, there's a lot about uh, the IQ wars as mm. well, some of those different uh, kind of bell curve uh, mm. ideas. But um, really, at, at, towards the uh, the end, you, you talk about the fact that, you know, you for instance, you don't need to be racist to be worried about immigration but you kind of do need to be racist to say that's because it's going to destroy our civilization, destroy our culture. We will be swamped and we will then become. So that's, a, you know, again, that kind of method of thinking, this this idea that, and it's, it's always interesting because it very rarely seems to come from people who, you know, perpetually quote William Blake or listen to too much Elgar. Um, <laughs> but that uh, that is a... Um, <laughs> Is that that really that you know working out that definition in terms of these different cultural wars, of what may well come from a uh, a place of, of of a genuine concern and what comes from a concern that has been manipulated by a kind of false history and ideology of race. Well, that well, false history and ideology is exactly exactly it. So many of those arguments are ahistorical or a or non scientific, and and put in place either through apathy about actually understanding the past or understanding the science or deliberately misappropriated in order to reinforce a, a pre-existing prejudice. So in a sense, you know, that is the main motivation for for the book is I, I'm not I'm not going to cure racism with this with this book. Um, I what I am trying to do is to is to say to both overt and um, uh, non-intentional racists or people who express racist views, often sport being a good example of that, is that you can't have my tools because they're, they're, they don't, science is no ally to racism, um, nor is the history of understanding racial taxonomies. 
And so, you know, if you're going to, I mean, this is a spoiler alert. This is kind of like the punchline to the whole book is is to say um, racism isn't bad because it's a because it's based on scientifically specious ideas. That's that's not the point. Racism is bad because it's an affront to human dignity. But what I am saying is that if you if you're going to be a racist, then you you're you're asking for a fight. But science is my ally and it's not yours. And, and this is why. I still think it's a pity it's not a choose-your-own-adventure book. <laughs> I still think How to Argue with the Racist, where you'd kind of go, oh, I'm going to go with, uh, oh, yeah, I'm going to go with Galton. Oh, you've yeah. lost your argument with, oh, man. Yeah, the, pick uh, one, pick one. I think we should, we could definitely do that. Well, it's like the bingo chart, you know, when you're having these types of conversations, you just go, and... There it is, PCA analysis of IQ. That's page 47. I kind of want that. A lot of people said to me when, when in the sort of run-up to this, especially in America, interestingly, um, a lot of people said, I wish I'd had this book at Thanksgiving. <laughs> I wish I'd had this at Christmas. And I think that is, that's kind of the... A lot of young people as well said to, said to me, oh, God, I need this so that next time my dad says something like that, I actually have the tools to disassemble it. And I think that I think that you know, done right, you you can disassemble those arguments and and say, well, actually, you know, it it doesn't actually make scientific or historical sense to say that slavery has has um, selected for explosive energy, and that's why we don't see white athletes in the hundred meters, or that you know, another myth, one that I, actually makes me slightly angry, is that you don't see black swimmers because their bones are denser and therefore they don't oh, float God, yes. as well. The thing that bugs me most about that is a lot of black people think that. They've bought into this. And it is structural racism that is literally lethal because 70% of African Americans don't swim and the death rate from drowning is three times higher in 5 to 15-year-olds than it is in European Americans. But the strongest correlates with not being able to swim are not being taught how to swim. I socioeconomic reasons, not having swimming pools built in, in black areas after segregation in 64. No role models, right? Sport is so determined by role models. And, and there, are, there are none. There are no black swimmers. Well, Cullen Jones is, is one now. Um, so, you know, it, it actually pisses me off quite a lot when people say, well, you know, black, black people don't swim because they sink. No, black people don't swim in America because they haven't been taught how to fucking swim. That's a much straight, more straightforward answer. You don't, if you need to rely on some sort of mystical biological buoyancy factor, then we're not talking about the same thing here. So I do get that. That's one of the arguments I actually get a little bit angry about. Hmm. But that also kind of highlights the fact that there are some people who, you know, when they are going to Thanksgiving, that that it doesn't come when they're arguing with a parent or whatever. It doesn't come because the parents have the heart of a you know a race threat. It comes from just misinformation and folklore which is everywhere and so oh no but i read this so, you know and that that's kind of that comes from a, a, a you know ultimately a more pernicious culture doesn't it really? I, I suppose so but i think i think it goes back to what we were saying at the very beginning that this stuff is baked into our culture yeah and its roots are 500 years old and and that we're so locked into thinking along these lines that you have to make an effort to get yourself out of out of those mindsets um, because everyone does it to a certain extent, we're, we're, we're you know sub, subconsciously we make all sorts of 
decisions all the time or judgments all the time about these types of things. Sport being one where it's vocal because it's very visual and it's positive attribute racism. Intelligence is another one which is a positive attribute racism. And you say, well, who wouldn't want to be smarter? And But the fact that Ashkenazi Jewish people are so disproportionately successful in intellectual pursuits and have been for much of the 20th century... You know, you say, well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Don't you want to be a conductor of an orchestra or or a soloist of an orchestra or Nobel Prize winners or chess grandmasters or all of those things that Ashkenazi Jews have been very dominant in? But then you look at the history and it says that is exactly, exactly what the Nazis did during the run-up to the, the Third Reich and the Second World War. If you can other a people by saying that they are biologically different to us. And and in the case of Jewishness, if you can say, well, these people are smarter than us and therefore they're potentially more powerful than us. This is one of the reasons why I think why anti-Semitism, I argue this in a, a little bit in the book, is a form of bigotry that exists in left-wing, poli- uh, left-wing politics and has done throughout the whole of the 20th century, not just in, as an issue for the current Labour Party, is that... It is the only, pretty much the only form of bigotry which punches upwards to perceived power. So if if you argue, if you believe that Jewish people are disproportionately powerful and that it is innate, then it's a form of bigotry because you're 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 struggling against against the power base. And for that reason, it may be a positive attribute form of racism, but it is no less pernicious. I mean, actually the best data says that the reason for scholarship success or cognitive ability success in Ashkenazi Jewish populations is because they have a deep, long-standing history of profound interest, um, yeshiva forms of scholarship, which is which is hundreds, of, if not thousands of years old. Again, that is a much more parsimonious explanation for that disproportionate success than saying it's inbuilt, it's innate, it's an unchangeable thing. Um you tried to end this about 10 minutes ago, yeah, but we're still yeah, yeah. going. I know. Have we fixed racism now? No, I don't know if any of this will get used. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's uh, it's moved into that Bergman-esque quality there. The uh, the trials of David Irving currently, oh, Ingmar God. Bergman's latest play. Did you um, see Get Out? The uh, Yeah. So, so a lot of the themes in, about physicality are... are dealt with in that the fetishization such a uh, love that film um, anyway how to argue with the racist is i should say by the way there is no guarantee you'll then win an argument if uh, if you fail in an argument afterwards you don't get your 12.99 back um but that may well be because they haven't necessarily used uh, above board techniques you will see that the uh, uh perimeters uh, and the boundaries of the argument will perpetually change um but how to argue with the racist and rutherford's latest book um and it's really good and it's uh um it's got lovely cover design a uh, really nice cover design one of my favorite cover designs of anyone that's oh, had thank a book you. in the, that's, in the uh, that's nice. so you know if you're still not sure <laughs> it's gonna look lovely well it's not a subtle title and and the designers elected to also not go for a subtle design to yeah. go with that and it, it will look nice if, if someone walks into a house they'll go oh these good people uh. um but no it's it's very what i like it, it, it's very concise it's uh and there's a lot of information in there and as you said that and i think as you 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 said when you ran this up about 15 minutes ago um the uh you know the, the <laughs> fact that ultimately what you were saying as well is science is not on your side information and evidence is not on on your side uh and uh, so it's fascinating how to argue with the racist adam rutherford out now <laughs> 
Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already, to like and rate and review and do all the things you can do with podcasts on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Patreon.com slash bookshambles where you can go to pledge to support us to keep making the show and everything else we do at Cosmic Shambles. Back next week with another new episode. Have a great week. Stay safe. Take care. See you soon. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.